0: So it's really just about understanding these situations are out there all the time in every market, in whether the economy is going up or down, like there's always people out there who own land that they don't want. And if somebody just shows up and makes it easy for them, they'll do it, but what they're not gonna do is put a for sale sign on their own yard. They're not gonna call a realtor. I don't know why, I mean, that's what I would do, but a lot of people just won't do it unless you show up and make it super easy.
1: Hey, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in depth conversations with successful real estate investors conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth investment knowledge and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. And today, believe it or not, it's actually sunny, so I'm happy. Today on the show, I have Seth Williams with me, and he's the founder of Ari Tipster. He founded it in 2012. And he's the host of the R.E. Tipster Podcast. And he was featured in Forbes bigger pockets, and many more very interesting publications. He has over a decade of experience as a real estate investor. He is buying lands, which you're going to learn about, and also multifamily and other passive real estate investments. Seth formerly spent about 10 years working in the commercial banking industry, underwriting hundreds of millions in commercial loan projects. So it's interesting that he made that move, especially since, you know, if you're used to underwrite loans, your your mindset is basically to look at all the negative things and what could go wrong. So it's interesting that you made that, you know, switch. And I can tell you that I definitely had that as a lawyer who's trained to see all the negative things that can Happen, so it's not it's not a given. So, given that you were able to make that switch, and last piece of information about Seth, he has a BA in business and communications from Calvin College and an MBA from Northwood University. So, without further ado, I would like to invite Seth to the podcast today. How are you doing, Seth?
0: Hey, Ellie, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's good to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you don't mind kind of sharing with the audience and myself how, you know, you got started in real estate I mean, how you found yourself doing what you're doing today.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, for me, it all kind of started back when I was sort of finishing up college. It was about 2005, 2006. And, you know, I had spent my whole college career trying to go after like just general business stuff, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. There was no like burning desire for a career or anything like that. And it was around that time when I discovered a book that a lot of people discovered, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it kind of mm-hmm. just gave me a paradigm shift and made me see, oh, maybe there is something else. Like maybe I could do this self-employment business owner thing. And so I started looking into real estate. And at the time in, you know, 05, 06, it was a really hot market, kind of like today. And I just spent so many hours trying to find deals on anything that would make sense, that would cash flow as a rental property or a house flip. And like, I couldn't find anything. It was super frustrating. And it was probably about a year or two of trying to fumble around in that realm, trying to figure out what was working and just failing at every turn. And I eventually discovered this whole vacant land niche, which at first I was like, what? Like vacant land? Like, why? It makes no sense. It doesn't cash flow or anything. But I realized after digging deeper, it actually can cash flow very well, depending on the strategy you go into it with. And really the whole thing that makes it work is the ability to buy vacant land for a very, very, very low price, like just a crazy low price. Like 10 to 30 percent of market value was the you know typical offers that, that I would be making. And when you Pay that amount for anything, any kind of asset, whether it's a car or jewelry or baseball cards or whatever, (laughs) you know, when you're in it for such a low amount, it's not that hard to relist it and sell the thing for more than you paid for it. And because land, it was just dirt. It was a very simple type of property. There were no houses falling apart. I didn't need inspectors to go in and check things out. I could do most of what I had to do online from like Google Earth and other, you know, due diligence services. And yeah, it just has turned out to be a really good investment strategy over the past, man, well over 10 years now that I've been doing it. And yeah, it's it's all about just finding highly motivated sellers and knowing where to get those lists of people and what to say to them and how to put deals together. And you'd be surprised, like there's lots of vacant landowners out there who are just super apathetic. They own their properties free and clear because they can't get conventional financing on it anyway. And, you know, you make these really low offers. And a lot of times people, maybe they inherited the property or they bought it 20 years ago and they haven't seen it since then. They're just apathetic, like they don't really care. And if anything, they sort of see it as a nuisance or a liability because it's a Mm. tax bill they have to pay for something they're not using. So when you show up and you give them an easy option to just get cash and take the problem off their plate, I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of people say no. It's not like everybody says yes, but- you know, when you send out thousands of mailers to people, all you need is a few people to say, yeah, let's do it. And it's all worthwhile and you can make yep. some pretty good money.
1: That's interesting. And thank you for starting the conversation on the asset, you know, part of our conversation talking about, you know, raw land. It's interesting what you said. I want to talk about, you know, refer to one thing they you mentioned that it seems that when it comes to land, unlike multifamily, single family homes, or maybe even, you know, other commercial types of real estate it doesn't look like owners have that emotional attachment. It's a land. So it's much easier to separate from it because you don't see something that is built on it. You don't interact with tenants. There's no story, you know, that can connect to you. So I'm interested in hearing kind of maybe one or two stories of how you were able to step in and, you know, recognizing a certain opportunity and taking advantage of it, not in a negative in a sense of the word because you help, you know, the owners to get out of, you know, owning something that they probably didn't want to, get some money and move on. And you got a land that you can later do something profitable with. So do you have kind of one or two stories that you can share with me so I can better understand your world?
0: Yeah, for sure. Like for example, the first deal I ever did, you know, I sent mail to this county in the middle of Michigan and I came across a half acre parcel of vacant land. The owner lived in Long Beach, California. Mm. He hadn't seen the property, man, decades. It had been a long time. And I offered him $331 cash to buy his property. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And not only was he like accepting of it, he was like thrilled that somebody would give him money for his land. And so I bought the thing free and clear. And at the time, like just the fact that I could own land free and clear for 331 bucks, no loans attached to it, no liens or anything, like that alone just kind of blew my mind because I just never even thought that that was possible. I never thought that way. In my mind, financing was always a requirement for any piece of real estate. And it's not like it was a super amazing property, but, and keep in mind, this was also in like early 2009. In Michigan, Mm -hmm. like the worst state in the country to be in with vacant land, something nobody wanted theoretically. And I listed the thing for 1900 bucks. So not a lot of money, but enough to, you know, make some money and sold it 11 days later through Craigslist of all places. And yeah, and that was just my first foray into land. And once I saw that and realized like I made this money with no financing required, like I could just do a lot more of these or bigger versions of Mm -hmm. these Yep. So I think a common seller is somebody who they just kind of don't care, you know, like they don't, it's not like they need it. And like you said, like, it's not the roof over anybody's head. It's not like you're kicking somebody out of their house. Like it's just a nuisance. And, you know, other examples would be, you know, sometimes like there was one lady who she bought this lakeside lot with her husband with the plan to build their dream home And their marriage ended just in a disaster and she got the lot. And it was just like this horrible memory for her. And she just Mm -hmm. didn't want it. Like she wanted somebody to get it out of her life. And it's an unfortunate thing, but it's not like I was tricking her or something. It's like, she was all on board. Like, please take this thing, like get the memory out of my face kind of thing. So it's really just about understanding these situations are out there all the time in every market, in whether the economy is going up or down. Like There's always people out there who own land that they don't want. And if somebody just shows up and makes it easy for them, they'll do it. But what they're not going to do is put a for sale sign on their own yard. They're not going to call a realtor. I don't know why. I mean, that's what I would do. But a lot of people just won't do it unless you show up and make it super easy.
1: Yeah, I think part of it is because you know, vacant land is not a desirable for some reason or extremely interesting asset class. So there's not a really kind of sophisticated industry around it. There are no realtors that that's their, not many at least, that that's their specialty. There are no fake reality TV shows that show how you can buy land and sell it. It's on the gray side of, you know, real estate and that creates opportunities where you don't have people that overbid you and $331, that's that's really nothing, which, you know, interesting story. And it, it's not a lot of money, but it showed you the potential of where you can get. Let's move to talk a little bit about process and evaluating lands, which is very interesting because as you mentioned, they don't create cash flow. So what factors do you look at when you're considering whether to buy a land? And then how do you know how much to pay for it?
0: Yeah, well, so a couple of things there. In terms of evaluating vacant land and understanding what is this thing worth, Mm -hmm. that admittedly is probably one of the trickiest things about land. And sometimes it's actually not that hard if you're dealing with like an infill lot and an established subdivision where there are comps all around it that are basically the same thing. In that case, it's not that hard to figure out what it's most likely worth. But a lot of times if you find just a random parcel in the middle of nowhere, like there literally are no comps. There is nothing just like that, that's sold in the recent history. And you also can't use the income approach because it's not making Mm -hmm. money and you can't use the cost approach because there's nothing on it. So in that case, it's, I don't know that there is a way to get like a crystal clear, you know, definition and even a professional appraiser will tell you like, you know, I I can guess, but I really have no data to back this up. And that way it's, it's kind of like a little bit of an art, like you have to look at Mm -hmm not comparables, but just other vacant lots that could be used for certain things in the closest radius and sort of back into it based on, okay, what features does that property have that mine does or doesn't have? And what size is that compared to mine? And again, like you're not going to get perfection, but you can at least get a ballpark idea. And the idea behind making a really low offer is that there's a margin of error built into that. So even if you end up being wrong about that, there's a huge profit margin. So, like, you're almost always pretty well protected as long as you're reasonably conservative with the number you put out there as your offer. And the whole issue of cash flow. So, that's really just a matter of what you decide to do with that property. Vacant land can totally cash flow. I mean, if you bought a vacant lot and converted it to RV storage, or you got agricultural land, you could turn it into a tillable farm. There's other stuff like I know some people. Can use vacant land for Airbnb, put a throw a camper on the lot and make mm. money that way. But a lot of people who do what I do, what they'll do is they'll buy these properties for super cheap, and when they sell them, they'll sell them with seller financing because remember, most banks don't want to touch these vacant yeah. lots because because they, they don't understand them. Either. They don't they know it exactly. Yeah, they can't value them so by me or the land investor offering seller financing, that's a huge value to that buyer because they can't get financing any other way. Yeah, you can charge you know 10% interest or no interest, whatever you wanna do, whatever works out. And you basically just collect payments on that over the next three to five to 10 years, whatever you work out. And it's not a source of cash flow that lasts forever because eventually it's gonna pay off, but it's sort of like a rental property that they own. And so they're not calling you with their problems because in their minds, they're the new owner. And that's kind of the peachy description of how it all works. And that is accurate. But the other thing to keep in mind is that sometimes people stop paying and they just disappear on you. And then you have to figure out how to get them off title and get the property back and all this stuff. So it's not always clear cut, but you know, if you can find reasonably good borrowers and good properties and figure out your loan documentation the correct way so that it's not a huge hassle to get your property back it can be a pretty cool way to create some cash flow from land,
1: interesting. So you're basically flipping them and creating an arbitrage of it's an opportunity there when you buy it at x and you sell at x plus one, and you're not only creating that profit on the gap of the value of of what you bought it versus what you sold it, but also you're getting interest and profit as a land as basically, The the lender, you're becoming the lender. So you're the seller and the lender, which is interesting. And I'm happy that you touched on that aspect because it leads me to the third part of our conversation, which is about the strategy of purchasing assets without debt. And as you mentioned, banks don't know how to underwrite it. And if they don't know, or lenders, and if they don't know how to underwrite it, they're not going to, they don't know how to assess the risks. So they're not going to lend you the money. How did you when you started out? how did you come up with the money? obviously you know three hundred and thirty one dollars? I can imagine that you can come up with that amount, but when you're we're talking about larger deals, larger lands, how can someone who wants to get into that business can you know bring that cash you know especially if there's no seller financing that is available?
0: Yeah, well, when I got started, I had three thousand bucks, so I didn't have hardly anything and That wasn't easy. I mean, I basically had to be very meticulous about everything. Like I couldn't afford to make a whole lot of mistakes. I would suggest having more than that these days, like 5,000, 10,000 would be great, but just, you know, it is possible to start with a very small amount. Just understand it's, you don't have a whole lot of margin for error in those cases, but ideally a person will have a little bit of cash at their disposal just to get their direct mail sent out and start contacting people. But if you don't, You know, another way to do this would be, and you could partner with somebody who does have cash and you could, you know, split profits with them or arrange some kind of profit distribution with them. You could also, you know, if you do have home equity, you could get a line of credit. You could get a business line of credit in some cases, which basically what it comes down to is, you know, getting the financing based on your own personal credit worthiness and lendability and that kind of stuff. And that's not what I did because I'm just, I mean, too a fault. I'm just not a huge fan of debt. So I usually try to steer in a different direction, but Mm -hmm. if a person's not afraid of that, and if they're confident in what they're doing, you can totally get a lot further a lot faster if you can harness the power of leverage like that.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you just said about the fact that you're not a huge fan of debt? Is this going to prevent you from taking a 70, 75 Percent, you know, LTV loan and buy a larger lot if that money was available. What is your kind of vision and thoughts about debt when it comes to investment properties?
0: Yeah, not necessarily. There's actually a lot I bought earlier this year that was zoned residential. I just got it rezoned to commercial mm-hmm. in what I'm hoping to do is develop a self- storage facility on that and commercial financing will be a part of that so yeah. it's not like i'm just vehemently opposed to it but it's the kind of thing where i i just want to be really sure about a thing and if I end up being wrong like I don't want it to destroy me like I want which like banks probably love this about borrowers when they think the way I do where it's like it's got to be a sure thing we can't be messing around with something that might not work out which you know that that hurts me in a lot of cases. That makes me walk away from stuff that could have been great because I'm so, you know, opposed to that kind of risk. But yeah, basically I just in my mind, I'd rather have the loan to value be a little bit lower, just so that I've got more skin in the game. Like if something does go south, it's not as huge of a burden to take it out. Like the payments mm-hmm. are lower, that kind of thing. It's just a more conservative approach in general. So got it. Yeah, it's just kind of just my personal philosophy, I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. So it works well with this type of investment because, you know, when it comes to multifamily or single family homes, maybe it's easier to buy all cash, you know, when it comes to single family homes, but with multifamily or retail office, it's very hard to make the deal work if you're paying, you know, all cash or, you know, taking a 20 to 40% debt. Normally, the numbers just you know don't really work. One question I have before we move to the lightning round question part is: Where do you go to find those assets? If someone is listening right now and is telling themselves, you know, oh, that's interesting, what would be the first step? Where should I go to search for those deals? What would you tell them?
0: Like to find the vacant land deals? Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah, yeah. So there's a number of different ways it can be done, but for most people who are just getting started and they don't have any established presence or, you know, deal flow or anything like that. Usually the way to do it is with direct mail and Mm -hmm. direct mail is something that for a lot of house wholesalers, is not working that well right now because it's just so competitive. And I think back in like, you know, 10 years ago in the recession, it worked pretty decent because people didn't want to buy real estate and it wasn't that hot, but with vacant land though, kind of, Because of the things we talked about earlier, like a lot of people just overlook it or don't understand it. And so that value, the perceived value isn't there. And so the competition, I think it has heated up just in the midst of all the stuff we're seeing right now in the market, but it's still way less competitive than houses are. And you can get a decent response rate. And, you know, it's more than enough to justify your costs, assuming you're getting the right list and saying the right thing in your mail campaign. So, yeah, it really boils down to direct mail and understanding where do you get the list? And what do you say? And when you make offers, how do you structure that offer? And I've got really detailed in-depth blog posts on all this stuff over at retipster.com that I've put together over the years, just explaining like, how do I do this? Like, how do I think through what kinds of offers to make and what to say to people and how to filter the list and what market to do this in and all of that. So...
1: All right. And we're going to put this link in the show notes. If you're listening and you want to check it out, you can just, you know, search for the show notes and you'll see it there. Well, Seth, we have arrived to the lightning round questions. Are you ready? I am. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. So the first question is about your favorite hobby aside from finding and selling, you know, buying and selling lands.
0: Yeah. You know, right now I'd have to say it's Like videography or making videos, this is something I got into kind of back around when I started REtipster, when I just recognized that video is a really helpful medium for teaching and explaining things. And through that, I've kind of turned into a video dork. Like I, I got like really nice cameras and I figured out lighting. And so I like to make family videos and videos for my site and that kind of thing.
1: All right. And what's the one thing that people don't know about you? Man,
0: I don't know. I'm trying to think here. I mean, I, I guess a, I don't talk a whole lot about like my personal life on my blog, but I, I've got a family. I've got two kids and a wife and we live just North of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we're pretty normal family. Like we don't look or act that different from the average person. So yeah, I'm just kind of a average guy, I guess. Nothing too surprising.
1: All right. Seth, what do you wish that you had known when you first started buying real estate?
0: You know, I wish I would have been able to look back and understand the value in taking risks and kind of going out mm-hmm. on a limb. And this is something I've I've always struggled with. And I still do to this day, whenever I'm doing something new, I just kind of have this natural fear-based mentality, which is not healthy, but it's sometimes it saves me in a lot of cases, but it also holds me back from stuff. And in hindsight, when I can look back at the times when I did go out on a limb and realize, yeah, it was fine. Like Things turned out way better because you did that. Sometimes, I just wish I could have that foresight with the future things that I'm working on, just understanding mm-hmm. it's ok. Like risks are ok. In fact, they're probably a good thing as long as you're you've taken a calculated risk,
1: yeah, exactly. I'm a strong believer in calculated risks. So, If you want to succeed, there's a certain amount of risk that you have to take. But as long as you don't take it blindly or just on a gut feeling, and there's some data behind it, then, you know, you will make mistakes because like you said, you know, you can never see what the future holds, but you're more likely to succeed than to fail. Seth, what's your number one advice for investors who want to scale their real estate portfolio in 2021?
0: Yeah, I would say... I mean, scale just in terms of like finding more deals or mm-hmm.
1: yeah, increase their portfolio,
0: yeah, I would say get help and just realize mm-hmm. like you're only one person and you you can't be expected to do everything on your own and do it well, and figure out like what your core competencies are and focus on those and work on finding help, whether that's you know a talented agent or somebody to help you crunch numbers or a mentor or something, but just understand like it doesn't all have to be on your shoulders. And that's another thing that I don't think I'm great at, but I recognize the problem in my own thinking. Like I I need more than just myself. I can only do so many things well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Seth Williams, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, on pretty much every social media thing. So you can just search for Seth Williams there, or you can check Mm -hmm. out retipster.com. That's like the main blog where I just have brain dumps and put all all my thoughts and information and learnings out there.
1: All right. Awesome. Seth, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it.
0: You bet. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. All right, guys, that's it for today. Be bold, be great, keep pushing forward, and I'll see you on the next episode.